Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. There is no end of the play where the dog is now like, thanks so much for this food, Amy. I'm now ready to go outside. What fresh hell. Laughing in the face of motherhood. What if I'm not a good parent because my kid is the only kid not lining up for music class is a huge perceived threat to our safety. With Margaret Abel's and Amy Wilson. The stuff we can control, we are controlling pretty well. And the stuff we can't control is terrifyingly out of our control. A podcast that solves today's parenting dilemmas so you don't have to. There's no particular reason other than to take up two days of your life to try to figure out how to get something notarized. Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And this week, we're talking about the power of not yet. I love this topic. I'm all over this topic. I feel like there is so much pressure that sometimes we invent, sometimes is thrust upon us, sometimes is just in baked in the cake or in the air, in the water, and that this seems to be something that we return to that I find genuinely helpful. Okay. I thought about this, a couple things we talked about recently that I was like, oh, this is a topic. One was this Ask Amy that I had done for a parent who has a two-year-old and a one-year-old, thoughts and prayers, and they're screaming at each other all the time because they, they don't share. They won't share. What can she do to encourage these kids to share? And I was like, nothing. Come back. Yes. Come back when they're five and four, and then you can start talking about it. Until then, God bless you, and maybe you should try you know, separating them when possible. That it's not... You can spend your time banging your head against the wall and feeling bad that you are raising two children who won't share, who will never share, who will never become right emotionally capable adults because they're not doing the thing that you need them to be doing right now. When it's so clear on the other side that the answer is, oh, that it's not even developmentally appropriate for, for a two-year-old and a one-year-old to understand that. That's the word I was just going to say. I think that the term developmentally appropriate, although sometimes it's not that helpful when you have a kid like punching you in the face and it's like, well, that's developmentally appropriate at 18 months or whatever. It's not always helpful, but it is always useful, which is, and this is the one thing that I see people doing. I mean, in my wildest dreams, I would never correct another parent. But is the one thing I sometimes see parents doing that I want to just 
kind of tap them on the shoulder and say, they can't do the thing you're asking them to do. And so I see you driving yourself crazy and I want to help, you know, and, and I would never do it. And I wouldn't have wanted it done to me. And I did this at that age. But it is, you know, there just sometimes seems to be a lot of fraughtness around things that are just like, you know what, just wait a year. As my sister-in-law always says about pictures where you're like, oh, I look terrible in this picture. She always says, look at it in five years. You'll look, you'll feel like you look amazing in this picture. And I think there's sometimes this developmental stuff is that way. You know, and I want to say, too, that there is a line that I'd like to draw between you're saying not yet. I'm not going to you know, address this yet or expect my kid to be able to do this yet. It doesn't mean never and it doesn't mean ignore it. Like I have a couple of kids who had speech impediments as a child, you know, adorable mispronunciations, you know, switching out of consonants. We go to peach class for that, as we say in my family. Right, exactly. And, you know, maybe we live in a day where that stuff is being, you know, over intervened on early. In this case, with each of my kids that had this, it was like, well, let's wait and see. Not I think about it, all of my kids had that. Like all kids mispronounce and substitute consonants. And then like they get to be four and some are still doing it and they get to be five and some are still doing it. And I feel like there's like a wait and watch thing that I was counseled to undertake that I was very glad about. It doesn't mean you don't do anything about it. And at some point, intervention became a good idea. But it wasn't a good idea at three because it might go away on its own. It might not. It doesn't mean I'm never going to worry about I have a really picky eater who's four and I'm just going to stop worrying about it forever. It's like I'm going to stop worrying about this for another six months, another year, another three years, whatever the case may be. I'm going to push out my expectations on this. One thing that I will highlight as the parent of a kid on the spectrum is that this can be very hard advice when you don't know how things are going to go. So like sometimes when you have a kid who has a diagnosis, it can look like, well, they're either going to be kind of okay in this writ large way, or they're going to be very high needs, and you don't know which way it's going to go. And so then the wait and see sometimes becomes like, oh, these early interventions are the things that make all the difference. And I think this advice, it's so much easier to see this in retrospect. That's, I think, the problem with this advice, which is like, sure, your kid, you know, like forcing your maybe 18 month old or two year old to constantly say please and thank you to adults, like, I know a lot of people just don't do that anymore because it, it's not really a thing. It's like training up. Let me give you this example. They have constantly studied language in animals and people are constantly tricked into thinking that animals can speak. So like you can put a thing in front, you could put like six buttons in front of a dog that one of them, when they press it, it says eat. And one of them, when they press it, it says out. It's my entire Instagram feed is the dogs with the 45. I love that content. You see it on TikTok, right? The dogs are talking, right? It's adorable. And they are not talking. They've trained themselves to touch a specific button for a specific result. Right, right, right. And it's cute and fine. And there's nothing wrong with it. But like, they're not actually talking. And... There was a huge, listen to the You're Wrong About podcast about Coco the gorilla. There was this gorilla that people for years were convinced was signing language. And then, spoiler alert, the gorilla was not signing language. The gorilla was making... Oh, I don't know. There's controversy. 
Don't you think there's controversy? I believe the Coco could sign if I think babies can sign, which I've seen it happen, but maybe not. It's not language. That's the only thing I'm trying to say. It's different than language. Okay. All right. Like you can make a sign and get a certain result. That's not language. That's a kind of a party trick. It's the miracle worker. It's the first thing. Like the word means the thing and the thing is the word. You know, the play about Helen Keller, it takes her the whole play to figure out what this happened in real life. That water, that when you spell these things, you mean water. That is language. That is language. But for animals, it is not language. There is no end of the play where the dog is now like, thanks so much for this food, Amy. I'm now ready to go outside. They're not developing language. Anyway, we're going down this crazy tangent. I'm not sure what's different, but it is that there's a we're ascribing to you're just saying that there, we're ascribing to an animal an ability to reason that's like that's not there ever. And we're ascribing to a two year old an ability to share that's not there yet. Right. Like you can teach two year old to be like, peas, thank you. Like they can definitely do that, but they're not processing language. It's a party trick. It's not part on a developmental change towards. That's the difference that I'm highlighting. So I think that I found some writing that this parent coach named Serena Nakin wrote about this. She called it the power of not right now. And this made sense to me because I think it's a problem because we think it's a problem, right? Like that, what I'm trying to say to this parent in a very supportive way is like, the problem is not that your two and one-year-olds cannot share. The problem is that you expect them to share and you're going to bang your head against the wall until they hit kindergarten when all of a sudden they'll figure it out they can do it. So the problem is actually in our heads, right? When we have the three-year-old who is still throwing food. We're expecting a dog to talk. Yes. Or, you know, we're more than that. Or, or like, let's make it a little harder. Or like the seven-year-old who is still sounding out sight words that they were supposed to know already. Like there's a delayed trajectory. They're not getting things. Maybe you have the eight-year-old that won't line up for music. Maybe you have the, you know, six-year-old who won't sit on a square at story time. Like these are... Oh, oh, I was just about to say the square, the bane of my existence. Won't sit on the square. The stakes are getting a little higher here, right? It isn't like, oh, my cute baby can say thank you, even though they don't understand what it means. This is like, they're supposed to be doing something and other kids are maybe doing it and my kid is not yet doing that thing and you're maybe getting pressure. But anyway, Serena Nakin would argue that still it's mostly what happens here where you're feeling this pressure is mostly inside your head, the parent's head. And I thought that she made a really interesting point that, when you're like, my kid is never going to be able to do this. Never be able to, they have to tie shoes. Why don't they know how to tie their shoes yet? I, and I'm a bad person. And why don't they know? And they have to know right now that we're hitting this like fight and flight mode in our head, mm, but it's anxiety. It makes a lot of sense. It's anxiety. It's just anxiety. It's anxiety. It's It was anxiety all along, as it turns out. <laughs> and she's saying, you know, we get into this fight or flight mode, like we have to fix this or else they'll never be able to go to school. We start to, you know, black and white thinking these things that will work out in the end. And the reason we do that is because we're anxious and we're anxious because our brains are anxious when we are presented with perceived threats to our safety. I'm like, yeah, you got me here. But here's where I thought was really interesting. She's like, the strength of our parenting being threatened. Like, what if I'm not a good parent because my kid is the only kid not lining up for music class is a huge perceived threat to our safety. Yeah, and I think that We talked a lot about this in the mom blame episode, which was a very revelatory episode for me, that your child's outcomes are fully within your power is the enduring fallacy and onerous nightmare of motherhood, which is, you know, that we were talking about 
autism and the idea used to be that like, oh, refrigerator mother caused these problems. But now the script has turned into like super mom can solve all of these problems. A lot of people are having a debate about whether or not these things are even problems, you know, but but the debate is never you don't really have a ton of control over how a lot of this stuff turns out. And so I think what we're trying to get to is with not right now is this may or may not ever be possible for your child, but it is not possible right now. So let's try again in a year. I took a yoga class once and the guy had this very lovely manner and he would always say, reach for your feet, someday touch your toes. You know, reach for the floor, someday put your hands flat against it. And it's just that image, like if I could incorporate that more into my parenting, like I have a kid who I worried would never read. And let's be honest, was told by some people would never read, who now is a very enthusiastic reader. Not the strongest reader on earth, probably, but but is reading. And in a way, is reading for pleasure. was something that I didn't know would ever happen. And it just took time. But also, it could have turned out the other way. This kid also could have never developed the ability to read. And as you say, the pain is in the gap. <laughs> I want to control that outcome. But the outcome just took time. But it's so hard to sit and wait to see how it's going to turn out. It's patience, but it's also, it wasn't like, well, I guess I won't worry about it and see what happens, right? Like there was attention and probably interventions and thought put into how to steer the ship in the way that would be towards reading. I was going to say the correct way, but instead I'm just going to say the path towards reading because reading is a nice thing to be able to do in this world. But taking out the fear that accompanies it as the parent that it's on you. Which, to be 100% clear, I never did. Never took the fear out, wasn't able to take the fear out. But I do think having a kid whose outcomes were murkier, maybe, than some for me has, to some degree, I think, helped me with my other kids just say, (laughs) it's going to turn out some way. It's not going to turn out exactly the way... Basically, I'm not driving this ship. I'm basically just kind of waiting to see where it heads and trying to stop it from banging into the reef. But other than that, I'm not I'm not driving it. But your anxiety or your stubbornness about that this problem has to be fixed probably isn't going to get them where they're going any sooner. It's not. It's not. I'm bummed to tell you. It's definitely not. <laughs> All right. We will be right back and talk more about this. I love this topic. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. 
Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Hello, Hellions. You know we listen to a lot of podcasts that aren't our own. And today we want to tell you about a podcast that really speaks to us and will speak to any parent of a child with special education needs. The podcast is called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. One of my kids has an IEP, and I found this podcast so validating and so helpful. I feel better equipped to advocate for my child's educational needs now. This podcast is helpful for parents in many different situations, whether your child already has an IEP or you're just starting to wonder if they might need extra support in the classroom. Juliana has content for kids of all ages and for kids who are learning English as an additional language as well. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. We talked about, during the pandemic, another version of this. We did an episode called The Great Regression, which is not and is very relevant, I think, in an ongoing way. So The Great Regression was about, in the early days of the pandemic, a lot of us were experiencing our kids were sucking their thumbs again. Our kids were getting out of bed and wanting to drag their blankets around the house or whatever, like doing things. One listener wrote in that their kid was going back to using pull-ups at night. And like in the middle of everything else we had going on, We're like slowly being dragged backwards. Nothing great, as it turned out, about the great regression. It was the vast regression, not the great regression. At least we could point to like, okay, we're all going through some stuff. We're all going through some stuff. All of our kids are going through some stuff. And we could see in that situation, we talked about the kid wearing pull-ups again during this episode. Like, don't make that. That's not something you need to fix right now in April 2020. Like, do not go to battle over this because... You're both home all day and your kid's got nothing else to do. So you want to make a huge thing out of this? Really focus on your concerns that your kid is using pull-ups again. You have to let this one go and just like, I'll see you in six months. And I think that's very good advice. And I just wonder sort of like, why aren't we better at giving ourselves that more of the time? Like when the new baby comes and your kid wants to sit in your lap more, like it's so clear what's happening. You can be, you can be accommodating of it. And so why can't we just have that mindset more often? Because the fundamental, some of the outcomes are really scary. That's why. Because we are told that, oh, your kid's sitting on your lap at four, like you're smothering them. That's a bad mom. Like real kids are independent. Good kids do this thing. And whether it's like good kids are independent or good kids go to Harvard or bad kids end up using drugs or, you know, skipping school and dropping out and having bad outcomes that, and the tricky thing is we do have some control over those outcomes. We don't have all the control, but we have some. Like if we had none, if it was totally just like, it's the Hunger Games, every kid is born and then, oh, well, stuff happens to them. It's not that we have no control. It's not. But I also think we constantly misjudge how if you're listening to this podcast and trying to be a good parent in any way, (laughs) you've ever read any of these books, you're doing any of this. 
I would say you're probably already doing 95% of the good things, but you're worrying that you're doing like 12% of the good things. And I think that's where we misperceive, like we're fighting that last 10, 15% of control when in fact, so many of these outcomes are based on the fact that like our kids have a general sense of security they have a generally functional education. They have a generally strong attachment to other people, including their parents. A lot of the fight is already done and we can like put our armor and our weapons down and say, the stuff we can control, we are controlling pretty well. And the stuff we can't control is terrifyingly out of our control. Right, but not for us. We did a recent episode on growth mindset and, you know, and is it a thing and is it a good thing? And some people were like, well, the study's flawed, but like teaching our kids to have a growth mindset is undoubtedly a good thing. A growth mindset is like, I can make mistakes and, st- and learn from things. I, I'm on my way to something better. A fixed mindset is like, you're either good at math or you're not. And so what's the point? That's a fixed mindset. So of course it's better for our kids to have a growth mindset. And I think we put a, a lot of thought and time into making sure our kids know that they have a growth mindset and then we kind of forget to have a growth mindset on their behalf. I can get very fixed mindset about like... That's a good point, that we see our kids as like the picky eater or we see our kids as like the problem learner and that we forget that our kids are changing a lot and growing and have some potentials that we don't see. Right. And that process is the growth is the work, not the end zone, not where they're going to go to college. Right. And I just had this conversation with a group of people about like, how do you define success? Like, what would success look like for your children? Right. And it was things like happiness and a job that's meaningful, meaningful relationships, meaningful work, happiness. Right. Okay. How do we define success for, you know, high school students? And it's like getting into a good college. Why? So they can get a good job. Why? So they can, and we talk the talk of like, you can be anything. The world is wide. And then we, what we show them is actually something very, very different. We teach them this very narrow definition of success, even though we're paying lip service to, you know, the world is your oyster and that we need to think about that. Right. And realistically, I think that the world isn't everybody's oyster and, the world is nobody's oyster. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> put that in a t-shirt. I used to say that <laughs> is the nobody's world oyster. Is nobody's oyster. <laughs> Hashtag Margaret Ables. But that's why also this is a really important lesson for our kids. My kid had a kind of crazy opportunity come about where they were able to submit themselves for this really gigantic opportunity through a series of odd events. I'm being purposely vague, but the chance of this thing happening is like one in 10,000. And I think my kid thinks it's one in five. And I'm sort of trying to be like, yo, this is really not going to happen. The fact that you were able to put your name in this hat was kind of extraordinary in and of itself. But like your name is not getting pulled. And I don't know quite how to like say that without crushing your dream. But I think a lot of it lies in like, well, not this time. But like you could put your name in 400 other hats for other things or for this same thing. Yeah. Carol Dweck tells this story in this TED Talk. It might be apocryphal because I tried to find, she talks about a high school. Apocryphal is an Amy SAT word. It might be not quite true, but it makes a point. 
Right, right, exactly. It's a great story anyway. I couldn't find the exact high school she refers to, and she doesn't name the high school in her speech, but she says she heard of a high school in Chicago where if students don't pass a test, they don't get an F. Their grade is not yet. And that's how she begins the speech, the power of yet, she calls it, instead of the power of not yet. And she has this TED Talk that I'll link to in the show notes. But that's her perfect example. So I want it to be true. I hope it's true. But that our kids could learn that they are a not yet on something instead of an F and that we're showing them that like that's what I mean we're like kids really need to understand that oh really because what are we teaching them right take the SATs again to get another 20 points whatever it's the talk we talk and the walk we walk are pretty different sometimes yeah I think that's right and being okay with ourselves that we don't set up the false binaries of life I was just talking about this with someone the other day and now I can't remember the example I was given but it's like we often set up for ourselves like choose this and be happy or choose that and disaster. And it's like, there are 8,000 shades of gray between these two possible outcomes. And like, make the travel soccer team or live a life of ruin is not a true binary. Right. And our ability to model that for our kids is super, super important, I think is, you know, it's every day is not yet, you know, and they have the joy of not yet. <laughs> I, unfortunately, at my age, some of the things are not anymore. Right. Well, that's right. That's difficult in a different way. Yeah. At least not yet is like, it's hopeful. Right. I think it's about bringing the horizon closer, right? I think that, well, like the talk about the pain is in the gap. The pain is in the gap between a second grader who can't sit on his carpet square and the 30-year-old who will not, will still live in your basement, right? The the horizon is so far and that's where all this fear and I have to fix this for my kid and I have to get him to do it now or else. And if we could just bring that horizon closer, like he's not yet able to do that, but maybe he will be next month or maybe he will be in third grade and don't worry about the what ifs, what ifs. And to be fair, this advice is sometimes extremely unwelcome. I have a kid who is extremely small for their age, like notably small for their age, and is in fact often mistaken for the younger sibling of their younger sibling. And, you know, at airports, let me guess your age. And I'm like, don't say nine, don't say nine. And they guess nine. It's very, to me, like funny and adorable and who cares, but for this child, not funny and not adorable. And they care a lot. And especially at their age, it's very difficult to constantly be mistaken for a child who is uh, much, much younger, because that's not cool. I get it. And my husband has a sibling who grew like six and a half inches freshman year of college or whatever. One of those stories of like, he was always the puny kid. He was always the tiny kid, went away to college and came back Mm -hmm. three Mm -hmm. inches taller than my husband, who'd always been like the big kid in the family. And so we always tell my kid that story. And he was upset at some point about this whole situation and saying something. And he's like, and I don't want to hear this story anymore about how this uncle grew during college. And I was like, yeah, that's fair too. Like, he's tired of not yet. He's really tired of not yet. If I had to put money down, this kid will be close to six feet tall, but not yet. And they're tired of waiting for not yet. And I understand that 
for parents and kids that when you have a kid who isn't, let's say, reading by fourth grade, that you're starting to get tired of not yet, right? It felt okay when they were in first grade and second grade. And now it starts to feel like I'm tired of banging my head against the wall. And the answer of stop banging your head against the wall doesn't always fit. You know, it feels it can feel really frustrating to people who and there are also people for whom not yet is never, you know, which is it's hard. Like, sometimes the pain is in the gap, but sometimes the pain is in not yetting for too long before acceptance, right? Like, maybe this isn't possible. I hadn't really thought about that category. And it's an important distinction. Most of the examples I was giving were of the second grader who can't sit on the carpet square is not maybe feeling a little bad when the teacher is like, why don't you listen if you have a teacher who's not very nice. But you see what I'm saying? They're not like, oh, no, I'm not going to be a self-actualized college student. They're not. Their horizon is what's for snack. Their horizon isn't what will become of me. But at some point, as your kids get older, it does flip into like, why aren't I getting this? Why aren't I getting any ice time in hockey when I've worked so hard and I always show up for every practice, right? Like, what's am I waiting for something that's never going to happen? That's a whole other thing to walk our kids through. Well, I think it's also really thinking about things practically and understanding that like this isn't not yet and sometimes striving is good like when my yoga teacher says touch reach for your toes someday touch them I can't touch my toes I have very tight hamstrings never gonna happen I'm gonna put my hands flat on the floor but it feels like this is worth you're striving for something that might be out there somewhere and that's useful and that I think that a lot of situations are like you're striving for something that might be possible. Even if it's not the star of the hockey team, like get on the ice more might be possible. Like, I think you're right, moving the goals and shaping the goals into not yet shape, but not being like, not yet, you're going to be a prima ballerina when you're you know, 14 and really stink at ballet? Probably not. Like maybe then your only goal is like, do your best in the recital, whatever. You can move the goals closer and keep them as not yet. But you want to be kind of clear about like, what's possible. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, there's something to be learned from striving. I have a really cool study I want to talk about after this. Amy's studies, guys, coming up next. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health, and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... 
Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. And now, things you are currently forgetting. From the What Fresh Hell podcast summer camp. Seriously, I know there is a foot of snow outside, but that is like tomorrow. In fact, you're probably already too late to sign your kids up. Summer's ruined. Thanks, mom. Where you and your family will be spending Thanksgiving in 2025. Oh, you're not ready to think about that right now? Well, spoiler alert, your in-laws are. You'll be getting that call before the week is out. Your kid's birthday party. Seriously, how do kids only have one birthday a year, but it is also somehow always time to be planning a party for them? Trying to figure out how to get something notarized. Why? There's no particular reason other than to take up two days of your life to try to figure out how to get something notarized. Probably you did something bad in a former life, and this is payback. Where you hid the kids' valentines that you bought and put in a special place. Sure, Valentine's Day is long past, and you already replaced all the stuff you bought and couldn't find, but you still really need to find those chocolate hearts before they start to attract roaches. Also, the laundry you left wet in the washer overnight, the dog's dental appointment, the school form that needed to go in last week, the fact that soccer is starting soon and your kids' cleats no longer fit, that email from your college roommate that you were going to send a nice long response to as soon as you had a free minute. In fact, it might just be easier to make a list of all the things you are not forgetting. This has been Things You Are Currently Forgetting from the What Fresh Hell podcast. So I was able to find that a lot of talk around not yet and growth mindset is like kids learn from failure. We all do. Like trying to do something and then not getting it yet is, is a learning process for your brain. I'm like, yes, but really? Like what says what study? Right. Show me the receipts on this. <laughs> says who? The receipts. Back it up. So I found this fall 2023 study just completed, the University of Iowa. They wanted to study if they could prove how the brain learns from human error. Does it react differently to a right answer than to a mistake? And so they took 76 young adults. They said, I don't know how old that was. They gave them a very easy task. They were supposed to look at a bunch of arrows on a screen and then like look at the upper right one. It doesn't say one of a group of arrows and click the direction indicating which way that arrow was pointing. It was easy on purpose. 
So they're doing this task and almost all the time they were correct and they'd get a triangle on the screen if they were, if they got the right answer. So they're going along, this is easy, this is easy, this is not really getting harder. Well, the crux of the study was once in a while, whether or not they were wrong, sometimes the answer was correct, they'd be thrown up a picture of something else, like a turtle or a frog or something, indicating they had not gotten the right answer. They were just randomly given, nope, that's wrong, even if it had been correct, which was an unexpected outcome or surprise. Like, wait, I thought that was right. So they measured how the brain responded to a right answer versus a wrong answer. So it took a second for people's brains to go between the two outcomes. I guess I got it right. I know I got it right. Wait, I got that wrong. That took a second for the brain to recognize. And then if it was a right answer, the brain was just like, okay, good, like back to zero and we can go to the next question. If you got it wrong, the brain lit up and took an extra two to three seconds to tell the visual system and the motor system and the other parts of the brain, we made a mistake. Let's not make this mistake again. Like, what did we get wrong here? What can we learn from this? The brain took two to three extra seconds for a wrong answer to literally retrain the other parts of the body. And they were able to show this with brain activity. What am I learning? I don't understand. So the idea is that the brain does learn from mistakes, that when you make a mistake, the brain is like, oh, that was a mistake. What can I file away from this and tell the eyes and the, and the hands and the, what can I learn so that I don't make this mistake again? It files things away for later. A right answer, I think don't get filed away in the right way. Like I was right and I knew it was right next, but a wrong answer, the brain stops and was like, hmm, what can I learn from this? We're talking like milliseconds. But it occurs. Sure, sure. But still, what's our thesis statement? That mistakes are good because they help us learn. Mistakes are good because they help you learn, right? They're more formative. They're more formative than getting something right. Got it. That basically the brain literally learns by getting stuff wrong. It doesn't learn by getting stuff right. Right. I know we've talked about this at some point, but like there's, I got a word wrong in a spelling bee, cappuccino, when I was in mm, sixth grade. Oh, we've definitely talked about it. Amy still remembers. Anyway, I've never forgotten it because it was a word I got wrong. I don't remember the words that I was given and got right. I don't remember those. All right. But I will never forget the word I got wrong. And I think everybody has that. Like, oh, I thought that I'm making this up. Rutherford B. Hayes was the president in 1870, but it was Abraham Lincoln, whatever. The answer you got wrong. Well, we're Jeopardy fans. We're huge Jeopardy fans, as you know. And Ken Jennings is now the host, but he was he became the host because he was the longest running contestant ever in Jeopardy. Yes, I remember him. And he got his question was FedEx. That was the answer. And uh, he still references it like every like <laughs> month. He's like, uh, it's like my FedEx answer, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what does that teach us really about the power of not yet? I think it's that we are not supposed to make our kids' path to eventual success shorter than it is. Yeah. And I also think that we approach our kids with a mindset. I tend to to have this mindset from a mentor of mine at work that like when something goes wrong, which it does because we're running a podcast company and that's not, you know, what either of us necessarily train for. We're figuring things out as we go. And everybody who we work with is smart and great. And like that when stuff goes wrong, it's like, okay, what did we learn from this? This, what is this mistake teaching us? What are we not going to do again? Is it, a, if it's human error, let's just move on. Human error happens. If it's a systems problem, let's fix the system. And I feel like that mindset, I'm just thinking for the first time, is something that I would like to give more voice to around my kids. Like, is this, this can't be fixed. <laughs> we just had a morning where after a day off yesterday, in which I kept saying to people, 
Is there anything we need to prep for tomorrow? Is everybody finished? <laughs> I woke up at seven o'clock this morning, or I became interactive with my children around seven o'clock this morning, at which point I was told that one of my children needed to be dressed as Harry Houdini by 7.45 a.m. And I was like, okay, so the 86 times I mentioned this yesterday, and my instinct was to just go insane and scream. And I'm like, oh, this is me. Like, this is so me that I can't even be mad at it. Like, the kid... Mm -hmm. It's human failure. It's human failure. It's not a systems error. I mean, maybe it is a systems error if we wanted to go back and be like, all right, everyone walk me through your school computer because it would have somewhere said, like, history presentation is tomorrow. So, like, maybe we could fix the system, but but it's just the way that this kid rolls and also the way that I roll, which is I'm 100% certain there is nothing I need to do tomorrow until I get the phone call that's like, you were supposed to be at the dermatologist 45 minutes ago. It's just... This kid, like, writing down somewhere that March 1st, making up a date, is the day, Harry Houdini presentation and then keeping track of that as opposed to what day it is, which, P.S., big kids have trouble with that too now that there's like no like real calendars anywhere that's a not yet i mean we could revisit our systems to be honest we have a kitchen calendar where like things like dresses harry houdini is supposed to go so that we all kind of see it and remember it part of it is system failure but at this point of the year uh, the systems are a little shaky we may reset after an upcoming break hopefully but all this to say sometimes you try and fail amy i guess (laughs) And then you go like, oh, I guess we're not there yet, right? And it doesn't mean like, my kid will never be able to keep track of anything. You didn't sort of catastrophize like, why can't you? That's really what it means. Yeah. Right. Or, well, I guess you're not going to have a costume then. And like you scrambled and you helped the kid figure something out. Yeah. Did you do chains? Tell us what you came up with in 40 minutes for Harry Houdini. I want to know. So luckily, this kid had dressed as a plague doctor two Halloweens ago. And because I had bought the like cool steampunk coat with tails, white shirt underneath, the hat that someone wore to be Oppenheimer this year. And then hilariously, we had had... Those like costumey like chains for a ghost, they were broken, sadly. They were gone. So I gave him some kitchen twine and I was like, just say that my mom wouldn't let me bring anything heavier than this, but this is his rope that he's going to like tie himself up with. Because he, he wanted to bring a deck of cards. I'm like, Houdini, that's an insult to Houdini. He didn't do card tricks, for God's sakes. He like, he put himself in a vault under the Hudson River. Like, you're not bringing a deck of cards. Do you know the Harry Houdini Museum is in Scranton, Pennsylvania? Congratulations, hometown of Amy Wilson and Harry Houdini. I've never been to the Harry Houdini Museum, but maybe someday I'll I'll take maybe your kids there. Not yet, Amy. Not, uh, not yet. yet. The power of exactly. I don't have to feel bad about that. I'm just. I think we've solved it right <laughs> there, Amy. You haven't been to the Harry Houdini Museum. <laughs> I believe in me. I believe in you as well, friends. Have you been saying to yourself, follow and subscribe? Not yet. I am I just get the episodes as I want. I'm just testing. <laughs> Please listen, people. Apple Podcast is hosing us right now with they're not downloading the podcast. Nobody's getting it. It's a problem. Please follow and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Remind, if someone says, oh, I've been listening to what for a show, are you subscribed? Are you following? This is the key because people aren't getting our podcast. It's a bummer and we need your help. Like, follow, subscribe. Yep, that's it. Thanks for doing it and thanks for telling your friends about the show. And with that, we will talk to you next time. So long, everybody. (laughs) 
feel like you're the martyr in your family, you're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.